0: Welcome to episode 80 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Bryn Jackson. This episode, we went to the
1: Vox Media office and hung out with Jason Maria. He's a design director there and previously has been working on things like Typekit and A Book Apart. He's still working on A Book Apart. He's been involved in a lot of things that have been really helpful for the industry.
0: Before we get into the show, just wanted to let everyone know that there are other podcasts on our network. Uh, that's the Spec Network, and we have five podcasts now, including design details. Our other ones are Developer Tea, which is a podcast for developers designed to fit inside your tea break. Immutable, hosted by Bryn and Sam Sophus. Uh, it's a short weekly show about design and development where they answer your questions. Does Not Compute is a weekly chat about the lives and workflows of modern developers. And Vicarious, pop culture through the lens of design and vice versa. All of these are podcasts on our network at spec.fm. So if you need more great listening material, go check them out. Of course, we always have two sponsors that made this episode possible. Huge thank you once again to Icon Finder. Icon Finder is the largest source of icons on the web. Every single week, it's just cranking up and up. There are over 670,000 icons in their library today. How do they even do that? It's amazing. And every icon is beautiful, uh, curated, and there's almost 13,000 icon sets. So if you're working on a project and you need a consistent icon set, Iconfinder has you covered. Go to iconfinder.com. You can browse by style, shape, category. They have categories like animals, food and drink, gaming and gambling, photography and graphic design, toys, even touch gestures if you're doing any sort of documentation. All different shapes, sizes, all file formats, so it's gonna work in any software you're using, whether that's Sketch, Photoshop, or Illustrator, or directly in the web with SVGs. They have a service called Icon Finder Pro. It gets you access to this entire library of over 670,000 icons, and it starts at just nine bucks a month. Those icons are licensed for commercial projects, so freelancers, you're good to go. And 70% of that monthly subscription is paid back to the original icon designer. So, if you're an icon designer and you wanna make money, submit your icons to Icon Finder, if you're a designer and you're just making something cool and need icons to go along with it, go to iconfinder.com, sign up for IconFinder Pro, and use the promo code DesignDetails. That'll tell them that we sent you and get you 50% off your first month. Thank you once again to IconFinder.
1: Our second sponsor is, as always, Dropbox. Dropbox is the simplest way to work the way you want. So whether you're sketching or coding or prototyping, Dropbox is with you throughout the whole process. They work on all your devices, across all your computers, across all your phones, across all your, they have a plugin for everything. Like It's safe to guess that if you want to use that tool, it works with Dropbox. So it works with any kind of file. You can use Sketch or Photoshop or Illustrator, Affinity Designer, everything. Like If it's a file, it'll work. And now, instead of sending a giant file and having someone download it to view it, you can just have them view it in line with a comment section so you can post comments in on a single piece maybe an illustration or something and give feedback or a a mock-up i was just working with a uh, photographer for our work over sidewire and i just posted comments on the ones that we wanted and he pulled them out and edited them it was great super seamless tool really like i didn't have to send emails which was something i was trying to avoid altogether and it gives you the freedom to work on anything from anywhere with anyone you choose get started at dropbox.com thank you once again to dropbox with that, let's get into episode eighty with Jason Santa Maria.
2: I'm Jason Santa Maria. I am a designer living in New York City, originally from Philadelphia. I work as a design director of editorial at Vox Media. I'm a co-founder and designer at A Book Apart, and I also have a website, JasonSantaMaria.com. <laughs> I think that's the personal website. Yeah, that's the the big stuff. I wrote a book called On Web Typography. Uh, and I like design and type a ton. You've been doing this for a while. I have uh, almost sixteen years, I guess. Wow. Yeah, and I feel old now. You're welcome. No. <laughs> <laughs> Just in general, before this podcast even happened, I felt old, but but now especially. Yeah, I, I used to be the young person in the room, and I'm not. I'm not that anymore. Some somewhere along the lines that that switch happened. And I, I didn't know it when it happened. I only realized it from the other side. (laughs) There was a line at some point and now I'm over right, right past it. So can you
0: explain to me what a design director of editorial means?
2: Sure. Uh, so I am on the team, um, that we call editorial products here at Vox Media. And this team sits between our product team, of designers and engineers and, and developers and product managers and all the editorial teams uh, of which there are eight now at Vox Media um, from The Verge to Polygon to Eater, Racked and Curbed and uh, all, all these different entities that that publish different kinds of content. So we're the team that helps them uh, design and direct and plan out the visual side and of their stories um, and sometimes that's helping them figure out how to lay out a page or to find a good illustrator and work with them or just pick type and color options, uh, all the way from how to crop images to working with photographers and, and any of the the kind of visual and interactive elements that occur in stories uh, are kind of our purview, but also making tools and developing uh, the system that they use to publish from. As a director, does that mean that you're like still getting to...
0: To make the creative decisions? Or are you more managing people, hiring? What's what's
2: your role? Um, it's both. I, I still do a lot of hands-on work, not only helping out to build some of the design systems here, but I have designers working under me and some developers working under me too um, that I manage and mentor. Uh, and I kind of also serve as one of the liaisons between our product team and the editorial team. So I speak on behalf of the work a lot, and I... Um, you know, make a lot of uh, decisions and judgments based upon the work that comes in that we're either going to do or not do.
0: Yeah, what's it like balancing that between eight different mm-hmm. publications? Yeah. Are there like uh, different processes for each or is it is there a system to this?
2: There, there There's a process to it and uh, sometimes it's different because the editorial teams are different. But one of the things that the product team is good at and continuing to to do is to try and standardize and baseline what that process looks like so that we aren't building eight versions of the same exact thing for these sites but you know we're building one that we can then customize or iterate upon for each of them instead so it's all driving from the same code base and the same smart (laughs) beginning. So is it still all based on Chorus?
1: I remember that being a very big um, deal When Vox first came on, they're like, we have this awesome platform. You should be on it kind of thing. Like, this is why it's amazing. I'm not
2: familiar with Chorus. Can you explain a little bit about what Chorus is? So Chorus is our platform for publishing. And it's not only a CMS, but it's a a lot more than that. It manages assets. It manages the editorial workflow and pipeline, um, as well as all the user information and comments and things like that. So it's a pretty big, sprawling thing. uh, And all of our sites are on it or about to be on it. Um, and it's kind of the, the thing that powers Vox. It really, it really is both conceptually and, uh, actually. <laughs> right. Uh, and it's a project that is always ongoing right now. Um, so I came to Vox with the team from editorially, uh, with Mandy Brown and David Yee, uh, the other two founders there. And the first thing that we started working on here, and they're both still, still working on this project too, is, uh, The project to reimagine what that platform and that story editor is and make it more modern. Because Chorus, while very powerful, is like any platform. It grew very organically and it's not the most organized situation. And, you know, there are lots of workarounds and things like that. And that's that's bound to happen. But uh our our task was to kind of re envision what that needed to be and make it make it more modern, make it more usable and take advantage of all the good stuff that we know how to do now.
0: What are some of the big challenges right now in editorial design? Uh, I think about like obviously the move to mobile and stuff, but of course new technologies and ways people are consuming content. Like what are you thinking about now? Like what's the next uh, big challenge?
2: The stuff that, I mean, it's not only what I'm thinking about, but what definitely the company thinking about is like advertising is gigantic and it's something that is a big pain, pain point for a lot of companies because they don't, know what's going to happen with all the ad blocking talk that's been going on. And um, we care a lot about that, not only making ads that are useful, we uh, want people to care about some of that stuff, too. And we have our own ad specs and our own uh, ads that we've designed that are responsive and and are, I think, really compelling. Um, and it's not so much those ads that are the problem. It's the ones that are algorithmically generated and, and to pages that kind of make for a really bad experience, especially on mobile. Uh, when it comes to editorial design, the stuff that I'm most interested in, the most, uh, I guess aware of is what, what does it mean to tell a story online? You know, what, is it just the combination of, of text and image What's the most compelling way to, to talk to people? And that's changed a lot, not only because of handheld devices and, and touch screens and things like that, but what people actually want out of a story and what kind of engagement they they wanna they wanna have with you when you want to talk to them. Um I'm not entirely sure where all these things are headed because there's an equal push towards stuff like Apple News and Facebook Instant Articles and, and kind of stripping away a lot of the things and getting down to the meat of the article. Uh, but I think that there are other people as well. I mean, we're experimenting with stuff too, but when you see someone like the New York Times doing VR features, you, you kind of get a, a good sense of where, where the experimentation lies and how, how you can bridge the gap between these devices and, and look at how storytelling can evolve too. So has editorial
1: design always been a, a big thing for you? I know you've been talking about typography for years and years. Like it was instrumental in, like me getting into like UI design originally because I was like, oh, I can do this with type and like types like a whole field among it, like unto itself. Um, and then you went into book publishing.
0: Uh, yeah, we were looking up your, your background. It'd be cool to just like sort of hear. Uh, now you're thinking about like this big picture editorial across all these verticals, but like how did you get here? You, you want to know the full, the timeline, the origin uh, story, the,
2: the list.
1: Yeah. You need like dates and timestamps, okay. but like, <laughs> uh,
2: well I can, I can be sort of general. I went to school, uh, at a small state school called Kutztown university, um, kind of in the middle of Pennsylvania next to one cow and another cow. And I studied print design there, just graphic design. I had a graphic design degree and right at the tail end, Um, Before I graduated, I had taken a random summer course in web design, which is basically a course in fireworks at the time. And was that still like macromedia fireworks? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's definitely still macromedia for a little while longer. This was in, I guess, 1999. And I, I just fell in love with the web. I responded immediately to how you can just make something and put it out there in front of people. You didn't have to print it. You didn't have to distribute it. You just put it somewhere and they could find it or you know you could point them to it and this appealed so much to my friends and i who just wanted to make lots of stuff and get it in front of people we were taking animation classes and designing zines and just making so much stuff and to be able to put it out there as this like grab bag of stuff uh was really appealing uh, when I got out of school, I got a job at a place called Power Design, which was a small design firm outside of Philadelphia. And they had a split in work basically between, like right down the middle between print and web. And I already knew how to do a lot of print design and I was learning web on the job, basically. So I threw myself into it. And When you say learning web, are you talking about like the, the code side of it or designing for it or type on it? Like what are the Sort of. I, I mean, at the time it was mostly code, you know, figuring out how to actually code a page. When I first started, I would make something in Fireworks or Dreamweaver and just kind of let the application do it. And over time, I would start looking at the code and editing. And as time went on, I became more, more comfortable with just editing the code. And that was right around the time that I think uh, Jeffrey released his second book, Jeffrey Zeldman's Design with Web Standards. And that like for many people was completely a mind bomb. Like it just opened up everything and I devoured it. You you can't read that book at that moment and not just want to change the world somehow with a website <laughs> as silly as that sounds. Um, and that's exactly what I wanted to do. So like I had a blog and I just wanted, I, I wanted to be part of that movement. Um, so I threw myself into that too. Uh, I changed jobs. I went to another place that's no longer in in business called TMX. Um, and it was when I was there that I started freelancing on the side and Jeffrey had cold emailed me and asked me to pick up the slack on a project that he was working on with, uh, Doug Bowman. And it was all because of an article that I've written on my site about the way that I worked in illustrator. And it just so happened that like Doug had hurt his back and he couldn't finish up the project and all of his files were in illustrator and Jeffrey somehow found my thing and then contacted me and asked me to pitch in and we hit it off. We had a really good work uh, experience and just the project went smoothly. Didn't have to, you know, let the client down and say that something was wrong. And we just kept working together. So I left that job, then started working with happy cog. Uh, We did tons of, awesome work and, and projects. And this was kind of right around when Web Standards was making a big splash. It was not only a huge selling point for people, but uh, kind of like something that really powered the web forward. You know, it really, it really moved people to understand that this was a medium worth taking seriously. And so at Happy Cog, uh, we opened up a Philadelphia office, was already a New York office and I was kind that of That was Greg Hoy. Greg Hoy, that's right. Um, who I had also started working with a little bit uh on the side while I was with Happy Cog as a different side project called Pixelworthy, a which traitor. is what eventually evolved into <laughs> the Happy Cog <laughs> office. Yeah, it, it it became really, really convoluted. And this was around the time that um I met Dan Mall, who was interning with us at This Place TMX. And he was the one who was working with Greg Hoy, who brought me and another friend of mine, Rob Weikert, in to work with Pixelworthy that became Happy Cog Philadelphia. Just kind of all spun spun together. Uh, so doing lots of great work at Happy Cog, and I moved to New York. And uh, not too long after that, I decided that I just wanted to try something else. So I left, I left Happy Cog and... All I'm trying to remember how all of this kind of threads together. But also during this time, I had worked on the fourth version of a list apart, mm-hmm. which um, happened, I think, in 2005. And this was a pretty. Were you a founding member of list apart? I was not a list apart started um, in nineteen ninety five. Wow. I think. It's yeah. been around forever. <laughs> yeah, it really has. My my brain is even messing I, up the dates.
1: I, I guess I always kind of thought of it as like always having been there, but I didn't know at what point it's that happened. Basically always been there. Yeah. I was six just when that came out. out. <laughs>
2: That's crazy. So I so I redesigned that um along with Jeffrey and, and Eric Meyer, and that made a huge splash. That only that I feel like that made my name as a designer and that put me put me out there as as someone I felt like who could do interesting work. But it also, I think, was a really... Not, as a design I'm really proud of still to this day. I feel like it used typography in a different way, in a very like conservative way, but um, really put the content and the article first uh, in a way that I hadn't seen on many websites before. And that design lasted for a long time. Um, I'm still... Even when I look back at it now, I still am really really happy that i got to work on that it feels like a like an artifact that, like that work that you did that you don't mind looking at anymore you know like there are certain things you <laughs> make rare like, oh, thing. well, yeah. it's like a landmark like, of the uh, web right like i i don't know if it is for the web but it certainly was for me
0: <laughs> well for the design community i think it probably absolutely. still continues to be right i am constantly looking at a
1: list apart of of articles like still to this day like every time i'm trying to do something it's like
0: oh the list of part wrote about it okay
2: yeah at this point, were you writing for A List Apart, or were, did you just design? <laughs> no, I was. I was mostly just I was art directing along with another friend of mine from from school, uh, Kevin Cornell, who's doing all the illustration work back then for A List Apart. Um, I wasn't really. I don't think I wrote an article for a long time, which is is silly that I would work on the magazine for that long and not write for it. Any reason? Uh, I think I just never had that thing I wanted to say which sounds stupid of course that's like what, I was still everyone's. writing stuff on my own site yeah right. I, no I don't I have no reason no no valuable reason okay
0: yeah I want to come back to blogging and then learn a little bit more about how that worked for you okay
2: but uh yeah Uh going. so yeah Alyssa Part and, and then I was freelancing in, uh, in New York and it was around this time that I decided I wanted to try some new things so I started up a few side projects like Typedia. Um, which is a kind of a type resource that is kind of going dormant now. Um, I started teaching at the SVA Interaction Design Master's Program, um, and I started doing a bunch of side projects, some letterpress and some silkscreen and things like that, and just trying to take more photos and, and kind of finding – I was a little bit burnout out at that point, and I was trying to find a different track, something parallel that I could throw myself into to maybe rejuvenate my my love for this stuff. Uh, and it was around this time that I had been speaking at a bunch of conferences like Event Apart and, and, uh, I met Jeffrey Veen, Jeff Veen, and, uh, he had just left Google, uh, to start a new startup thing that ended up being Typekit. So I was, uh, the first employee in the door there to help kind of shape. I mean, he knew I was a huge type nerd and also a designer and, I could, I could really help give, give that some sort of some sort of voice and presence, and that is exactly what I wanted to do. That was so wonderful. And Jeff is like everyone there. Jeff Veen, his brother Greg Veen, Brian Mason, and and Ryan Carver, all the founders of Typekit, are some of the most intelligent and ego free people I have ever met. They're just giving with their time and their knowledge, and make so many smart decisions. <laughs> they're just like wonderful to collaborate with and build something with. So I learned a ton there and got to make something that I feel like really had a gigantic impact on web design. Like Typekit really pushed that conversation about support for web fonts forward, you know. It, it's it's mm-hmm. not to say that it was the only one who was doing it or anything like that, but I think that we had we had the momentum that really helped
1: Absolutely. It was, like, the default option, right? Like, since the word go, it seems like.
0: And so that was somewhat recently. That was a few years ago. 2009. Yeah. And what happened
2: uh, after that? You, How long were you at Typekit? Uh, I think about three years. Okay. Um, and then it sold to Adobe. Yep. Were you and there at that point? There. I stayed there for okay. a little while. I was still working remotely from from New York this whole time. Um, left there and started freelancing again uh, before then founding editorially with Mandy Brown, David Yee, at the time, Ethan Marcotte as well, which was a kind of writing and editing platform that spun out of, I guess I forgot to mention Book Apart. <laughs> a book oh, of, a book apart <laughs> at also. some point in here, you yeah. co-founded a Book Apart. <laughs> so Book Apart happened around then too, uh, 2010. Uh, we finally launched a Book Apart, something that we had actually been planning to do since the part redesign. So it was a very long time coming to really get all of our ducks in the row. So we launched that and going through the process of editing and collaborating with authors on the things that they were writing was very painful, not only from like format to versioning to, it's just a mess and you're sending around files that are like final, 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 two, final, 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 no, really super final, I promise it's final. You weren't working with the designers, right? Dot text. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, it. I think we wanted to see if there was something there that we could help fix. And editorially was all about collaborative writing and honoring the editorial workflow and the process of collaborating with others on on text. And um, we we did that for a little while and had a great time doing it, but we couldn't we couldn't make it last. Um, it wasn't a sustainable thing that we could make go. And uh, at the end of that, when we had to shut down, Vox came in and was really into what we were doing because a bunch of the teams here had already been using editorially for writing, like Polygon was using it and some of the other writers here. So they asked us if we wanted to come aboard instead of, you know, just going out of business. It's it's a better option than folding. Yeah. And, uh, and Vox turned out to be a, a really fantastic company. Yeah, you've been here
0: for a year and a half? Year and a half, yeah. Okay, you've worked on tons of side projects. You've been at agencies, uh, physical product shipping books. Uh, is there like one piece of this that like really calls to you? Is it? Is it uh, Or like something you see yourself going back to
2: uh, time and time again? Um, I guess if I had to peg it on something it's like the transfer of knowledge it's something that that's always been a part of what i've done i like i like learning and i've had some fantastic teachers in my life and i want i want others to have that same experience whether that's from a book or an article or for me personally or someone that i've helped to teach them i want other people to be able to have resources to learn too because I think the thing that attracted me to the web so much in those early days was everyone was sharing. It wasn't like I had my art classes and everyone was kind of like adversarial in healthy ways. But, you know, it was kind of like competitive. competitive. It's like this is what I'm working on and I'm going to do better at the crit than you are But on (laughs) on, on the web. It was like, sure, come look at my code. This is how I did this. LOL. I don't know what I did, (laughs) you know, and That is super appealing, you know, just that openness. You realize that everything we make on the web, we're all standing on each other's shoulders all the time. Like no one owns any of this. All these techniques, all these ideas, they're all inspired by everyone else. Mm -hmm. Do you see that same uh, thing happening today, that
0: same openness and discussion and community around the web?
2: I do, but... I see an equal an equal faction of closed offedness. Yeah. Because there's tons of money on the web now. Corporations from,
1: have never been good at like being naked for very long.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And it's like there there's a lot of IP wrapped up in how certain things are done mm-hmm. and some of the processes. Yeah. But on the flip side of that, the web is also really good at decoding things. They're really good at understanding how you can do something in a second way or a third way or fourth way and um often a better way (laughs) often a better way or like a more open way something Mm -hmm. that other people can contribute to and that's the kind of stuff that lasts you know companies come and go and they start up and they go out of business and the the kind of stuff that lasts is like this this hive knowledge of how we like to do things or how how something can be built in a in a sustainable way, that's the kind of like amoeba mass that's always getting bigger and moving forward that sticks around. Like the way that you make a web page has not changed that much since when I first started making web pages. The way that I make them has changed. I'm not using an app to write code for me anymore, but the actual structure of a page it's kind of the same, you know, and that's Head, awesome body. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the details have changed and they've been refined and, and that's always important. But it's like, like I said, we just keep standing on what we've made and making it better. I'm curious. Uh, you've been blogging for a long time. Just
0: like what that's been like for you to, uh, this sounds so silly, but I, I remember reading all of these design blogs and they were so influential on me. And I think, Now, like with the mediums and stuff, uh, that's all very, very accessible. But I'm curious from your point of view, like what did blogging mean to you and how did that help you kind of work your way into this
2: industry and become known? Uh, Blogging for me was joining a community, like a web ring without the actual ring. (laughs) Uh, There were a number of people whose sites I had visited who were doing posts on, you know, how they had did this layout or this interesting CSS hack. And, um, I wanted to be part of that. So I started writing about similar things. Um, and by doing so, you kind of are automatically accepted into this larger hole of people discussing this. It's like the doors were always open in this room and all you had to do to get into it was to say walk something. Yeah, yeah. Walk, walk in, you know, make a site and, and speak up. That really opened my eyes to what, a virtual community could be. It wasn't just the people that I was in the same room with at school or, you know, in my neighborhood, but all across the world. And that was kind of like a breathtaking moment for
0: me. Do you think that experience is still possible for someone that's young and getting started today?
2: I wonder. I I I think that it is. I just maybe it's not the same experience. A little while ago I had, I had this thought that if I were coming up now, or even, you know, a few years ago, if I had just gotten out of school, would I even make a site? Would I just like have, like be on Facebook and that would be my community? And would I have learned to even code a website because of that? Like the reason I learned how to code is because I wanted a personal site and or medium. It, and now everyone it, has like 12. Yeah, <laughs> it, exactly. Yeah. Or, or medium, yeah. right. Like the place where people write now and they discuss, it's different. And I wonder if the skills that I, Gained from going through that process would still be there if if I were you know getting out of school today.
1: Well, editorially, it let you work with a community of people to edit your files, right? Like mm-hmm. and help improve your writing. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the best features of Medium. Like before, I'd been writing on my own blog, like which was Ghost CMS, which I really liked. But then, uh, as hanging out with Dustin Sinos, and he's like, "Okay, try Medium. Use the." editing features, and that was the best piece mm-hmm. but once like once you have that community, that's the hardest part to get. Did you have problems like building up that community
2: for editorially? yeah, I think we we leaned a lot on the people that we knew who were writers and editors uh and people who are already kind of in that world of writing as a job, not just writing because they they needed uh to write a post or something like that, but people who are writers and mm-hmm. and reporters and journalists I think are the easiest because they are already in that mode, um, but I, I, I don't think that we had trouble attracting them. But I think we we weren't able to move fast enough to to make a, a bigger impact. Okay,
1: how did you connect the, the people who were like new users of the product to those people, or was there any of that?
2: No, it was it was sort of a your own th- community. Yeah, it was your own okay. community. Yeah, it wasn't like a a stable of editors or or anything like that. Interesting. Could
0: we do some practical tips? Sure. Line height 1.4. <laughs> yeah, no, like seriously, as, as someone who's seen sort of web type evolve from uh, basic to what is now a pretty complex system, and like you have Typekit and Google Fonts and all these different things, like if you were getting or advising a new designer uh, designing on the web and they're interested in type, like where do you even start? What are the What are some of the foundational things that people should be looking at now?
2: Uh, I think that good type is kind of, It's kind of a constant, like if you have good type in a book or a magazine, what makes it good is not drastically different than what would make it good on a screen. Um, There are other considerations that you have to pay to the actual medium. Um, What would you consider good type just for a good baseline? I think good type for me, and this changes dependent on the context, but good type for me is not that opinionated about the voice because the voice i think needs to come from the writing more so than just the typography and again like this is not a this is not a constant but i think that the type needs to just sort of fade into into the texture of the page it can't compete for attention with what you're actually reading so it should be legible it should be nicely spaced it should be a font that is not distracting but i I feel like those are all kind of just smart defaults they're things that you can you can get a feel for after you know what to look for um but choosing the right typeface is usually where that problem starts like if you get it wrong it's usually because you probably didn't choose a a good typeface
0: well there's basically unlimited options now true (laughs) so where do you even start like i was even just on typekit the other day thinking about like working on the spec website and like there are so many options and combinations like I don't even know where to begin, so I just kind of defaulted. <laughs> I just, well, you sent me a ton of mock-ups of them. I did a bunch of mock-ups, but then I was like, fuck, I don't know, maybe just Helvetica. <laughs> like this is so it's so simple, and like well, uh, that, that was the thing is like the, it, we'd have to post up the a screenshot
1: of that, but there were a lot of options that kind of got in the way of the content, and Helvetica and I think Proxima Nova was another one that just kind of got out of the way
2: that's where things get interesting because helvetica while is sort of plain and is not very opinionated it also has a a tremendous amount of baggage behind it too because it's it's so overused and so pervasive that it's difficult to escape what other associations, the it might have with it. Yeah, but wait, it's I- interesting.
1: I think it is like a cultural default. So because of that, <laughs> there's like less in some ways, but sometimes, there's, yeah. Sure,
2: it's the design. I, it is a cultural default. It's it's the default option. Like if yeah. you were to, um, I don't know.
1: That's like Helvetica and Ariel right? Like those were the two big ones.
2: Yeah. It. It's the default, or I I
0: think it carries maybe more baggage with designers. Do you think it carries the same baggage with just like a normal reader consumer? At, maybe at a subconscious level, I don't know.
2: Maybe I. I no, I agree. I, I don't think that it has the same the same rub for the normal person, someone who doesn't know much about typefaces and has no need to. But I also don't know if that is a is a fair argument because I think that people are adept at finding interesting interesting visual things in their world, whether it's a billboard or you know something on the subway or the way someone is dressed and i think that people are sophisticated enough that they can find a hook something that feels a little different even if they don't know why even if they can't put it to words something that feels like it's got some interest behind the surface and helvetica i feel like removes all that interest helvetica always feels like a very clean slate to me that um you're not in danger of saying the wrong thing but you're also in danger of saying nothing
0: Hmm. So what would uh what would a good
2: alternative be?
0: Where do where do you start? And that's the crux of it. Yeah.
1: Because <laughs> That's everyone's first question. Right,
0: because uh, What's your favorite font? Well, it's, it's, <laughs> How do you pick a font? <laughs> wow. Um we well, just, like just had just a design a really quick. <laughs> yeah. They,
2: I think that um fonts don't exist in a vacuum. So you can't say this is a good font full stop. Because everything um to deal with type is if fonts are a tool and they need to be applied to a situation, you know, like uh, you might have a hammer that is a really good hammer, but it's only good for um, putting shingles on a roof. The screwdriver will only fit this kind of screw. Like there are situations where some type works and some type will not. And that's where I think the, the skill behind typography comes into play in the experience and that doesn't mean it's it's got to be years of of practice and study it's just like taking a step back and knowing that there's a a use and a purpose behind the way that certain typefaces work and some ones don't some are meant for use in small situations some are meant for use in very large situations some things are better i think um for reading because they're a little bit more legible. They have a little bit more information um, to distinguish the letters from one another there. Once you know that there are these kind of little nods and little bits in certain directions that make a typeface distinguished for a purpose. um, I think you start to recognize how, how to weed out the type that's not going to work for that purpose.
0: What do you think about iOS and Android starting to push a little bit harder on having Defaults, uh, i.e., San Francisco and Roboto. Do like the new Helvetica and Arial. <laughs> yeah, is that, is that is that a good thing? I, you think of the web as kind of like you can really do whatever the hell you
2: want. But on iOS, if you do that, it feels pretty out of place, right? You really can't do whatever you want because it's always going to be about performance. Okay, y- sure. y- You yeah. know, like you're always going to be loading uh, typefaces onto a page, and that's gonna that's gonna take time um, and bandwidth, but. The The stuff that's happening with the OS fonts, like San Francisco and uh, Sego and, uh, Roboto. and Roboto, I think is kind of awesome. I forget they're about just, Sego all the time because I never talk about Windows fonts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and Fira on uh, Firefox. Yep. Um, I think it's kind of great that they're investing in good typefaces, like... There are typefaces that are meant for screen use. Helvetica was never meant for screen use and yep. it's been thrown onto screens. And I, I, Helvetica I didn't no,
1: it was pretty critically panned. It seemed like for, especially for iOS, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think that it's very legible. I don't think that it's suited for a lot of the uses, um, where it was thrown into, but, uh, San Francisco is like it's a, it's a much more mature typeface family and much more responsive to all the different places that gets dropped. The thing that I'm most interested in about these UI typefaces is it's something that is bordering on like native, native language or native uh, visual language for an operating system. So if I can specify, I want San Francisco to be used or just the system font in my app or on my website, not only do I get something that looks like the vernacular that they're used to, but it's one less thing I have to load on my page because it's already present in the system. That, I think, opens up some really interesting possibilities. And there's a CSS, just like a line of CSS, you can do that, right? No. It's like... I think that's pretty new, right? Like the OS Dash font. Apple... Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a little... Font, it's, right? it's not entirely uh, ironed out yet. And that's more on the browser side of how how we're able to it's call mature. these system fonts. But um, I feel like that's something that could come through pretty quickly.
0: Is that something you're thinking about with Vox and like what you guys are
2: building? Absolutely. We're, we're placing so much of an emphasis on performance um, now more than ever and looking for all the ways that we can make uh, the asset load smaller and not impact the experience that we want to deliver either. And part of that experience is images and colors and css and video and fonts um and however we can reduce that or lean on what's already there i think is is going to make our jobs a lot easier so do you have a set of typefaces that you resort to often
1: or or where do you start with that process
2: i think that i i have like a handful of typefaces that i use when i don't know what i want to use and more than anything, those end up as placeholders. It's like, I know that this works this way. So for the moment, it'll do that job until I can find something that might be different. And they're, they're typefaces that I'm used to that I that I like a lot. And it's not that different than um, everyone always cites uh, Massimo Vignelli's uh, uh, like five typefaces He's, you know, he made his career off of these five typefaces and he didn't see the point of, of using much beyond that um, because he, he really thought that they were perfect and they suited all the needs that he had for them. And it's not terribly different from the way that I approach things, but I don't find that as an end point. Like I, it's a starting point for me. It's like a handful of typefaces that do things a certain way that I can default to while I'm wrapping my brain around the problem. So I'll have like a UI typeface and I use uh, facet a ton, which is what we used on uh, editorially because it, it has this great slightly condensed body that reduces well. It's super legible. It has these really open counters and it just has this personality to it that it, it feels kind of passive, but modern in a way that, that just works. And I'll, I'll often throw that at whatever I'm designing just so I can understand where the gaps are. Like I can, I can learn as much from setting something in a typeface like that um, by how it's not working as I can by if it is working. Uh, maybe you uh, touched on this. Did you learn all
0: of the technical details about type when you were getting started as a, a print designer? Or was this over time on the website, like learning the technical terms and, and what makes a, a letter a letter?
2: Uh, I think we, we learned a lot in school. I had, you know, many typography courses where some were just about identifying typefaces by sight. Some were about anatomy of type or history of type and, um, the different classifications of type. And I think that at some point in there, I just developed a deep love of typography and just started buying every type book that came in front of my face and reading a favorite. (laughs) Um, you can plug your own. Uh, no, my, <laughs> I, I, my my book and me do not get along because it took so long for me to write it. <laughs> I'm very happy and I love it. Don't get me wrong. But um, I think I like... Cyrus uh, Highsmith has this fantastic illustrated book called Inside Paragraphs uh, that... That's one I've never heard before. It's, it's nice. a really... It's a beautiful, beautiful book and it kind of looks at uh, typography from like the small unit of a word and a paragraph and what the texture of that looks like and how that small piece makes up the whole. Um, and that's a, it's a very short book, but superbly illustrated in it. Like that's a, that's a really great place to start in trying to see type beyond just being some letters, but understanding how all these little decisions you make add up to a bigger whole. Yeah, I think for me, like w- one of the insightful things, I'm I'm still quite new to
0: type, but uh, Apple's keynote on San Francisco, mm-hmm. uh, like the math that involved with it, was it blew my mind. And the automatic like, type features were so the good. the automatic type features, like you know, I knew type was complex, but holy shit! Like even just like oh, we're visually centered colons. We want to nu- We want to have a little more open space here on on display versus text. Like all that kind of stuff would just blew my mind.
2: Also, like that San Francisco in particular is kind of the far end of the spectrum for complexity most typefaces and most typeface families don't approach that that and that's probably okay (laughs) and apple seems like they are in a position that they should be investing in that right they should it surprised me for the longest time that they were using helvetica and that they had so much money and i knew that type (laughs) like type was actually something that was kind of in the company's dna yeah they cared a ton about it and It just turns out that San Francisco takes a really long time to make. I think. Yeah. (laughs) Do you have? There had always
1: been rumors of an Apple Sans, like for a long time. It's it's nice to kind of see it come to
0: fruition and have it be as well thought out as you'd expect. Yeah. Do you have the curse of not being able to walk down the street and try and identify every single typeface you see?
2: Yeah, I do. I absolutely have that curse. (laughs) And (laughs) the worst part is that I, I think I've. I've both infected everyone that I know closely or annoyed them to death <laughs> with this. They kind of go hand
0: in hand. Yeah. <laughs> My roommate wanted to learn how to identify Helvetica. So I like taught him. And now we're walking down the street. He's like, Helvetica, Helvetica, Helvetica. <laughs> it's like See, it's everywhere. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> but a it is it's valuable. It is farm. everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that. I just wanted to make sure I'm not like You're not going the only crazy. one. Yeah. We're, we're all We're all crazy. We're all sucked into this craziness. Um, you want to talk a little bit about process, yeah? And and some of the process you're thinking about here. You guys just came out with a code of conduct. We did talk a little bit about like the impetus for that and why.
2: I think the like many things, I I, I don't think it was created in a vacuum either. the uh, The code of conduct is sort of um, looking at the way that. The publishing industry and just like the the internet in general has been evolving and where where some of the momentum for trolls and and like the awful thoughts and how easy it is to to really be an awful person with no repercussions in this virtual environment that I think we we wanted to take something back and document how we want our culture to to act and how we want our culture to respond and support one another. And when you read it, a lot of it just feels like common sense about not being uh, a selfish, a selfish person and understanding that everyone around you has experience and thoughts and useful ideas and that we need to value everyone's equally. So having inclusivity as like the paramount point of bringing everyone together in a safe environment where everyone else holds these same values um, felt like something we had to do. How does it impact uh, your process on the design side? I think that it's made me, made me appreciate that we have somewhere where these things are written down and that we can refer to and that we can rally behind and continue to go back to and read and refresh and, and know that this isn't just, something that we put words to but it's something that the company believes in all the way up to the top um so how that affects my process is is i i guess it really hasn't um changed my process but it's made me much much, yeah it's it's new yeah and it's made me much more um much more steadfast in how we do things um And much more confident that we're doing things in a healthy way so that everyone at the table you know has has a voice and and can share and contribute how big is the design team uh that is a good question i don't have a good number on that i know that our product team which is made up of the designers and developers um is over 100 now um i i would probably say maybe close-ish to half of that is design maybe not that many um I know we're we're definitely like most places engineering heavy in the breakdown but
0: now do you distinguish that design by like graphic design versus product design or how does that split up
2: uh, It's I I think it's all product design all product Yeah and some people you call Might. yourself a graphic designer on your website, right? I do. I do. I think, I think that's, that's me being snooty, I think. <laughs> okay. If, if anything, like, no, I got a degree. I Jason paid for Jason Snoota Maria. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, I had loans. I had to, I had to pay for it. Um, <laughs> I, get the, I get the title. Um, no, I think that's me being snooty because uh, there was a certain point in my career where web design was seen as a second class uh of design and certainly when i moved to new york and i was trying to immerse myself in the design community you have some of the most famous graphic designers in the world here doing some of the most famous work in graphic design and to them a website isn't design like they don't see it as as difficult or as high design or as valuable design it's more um Kind of like an engineering task, something that you know, like paperwork that needs to be filled out or something uh so I think I kept that little feather in my hat as a nod to that, just to thumb of my nose at at that kind of thought because. Uh, it, it made me feel, it made me feel better, which is probably not, (laughs) not, not the right answer. But, um, I, I think design is, is way broader. You know, there's so many different ways to define design and they're all kind of right. And that doesn't mean that one is somehow better because it's, I don't know, every, everything has different conditions. I don't think there's a
0: better design. That's just all. Uh, I really enjoyed your interview with the great discontent. Um, thank you. But one thing I extracted from, I couldn't quite get a clear read on was whether you enjoyed design school or not. Like <laughs> there's like a love, hate a little bit. Am I, yeah. Did I think you're just right? hanging out with the two cows.
2: Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I think, well, I think every designer who went to design school probably has love a hate. similar love <laughs> hate because it, it's, it's one of those experiences and in other, in other professions and, and majors have this too, but it's one of those professions that it pushes you past where you think the line is you know where you're comfortable with with where your work is and it pushes you a lot farther you you pull many old nighters you are in the emergency room because you're you've been up for 3 days and you cut yourself with an exacto knife and y- you know it it pushes you into these uncomfortable areas that was very specific it, it was i wonder if that <laughs> happened or not <laughs> weird um, <laughs> do you want to share a story <laughs> no that that was the story uh i think i think that that design school is, for me, was transformative. I went to college, I applied to one single college because I thought, oh, they have an okay art program, maybe I could go there. And somehow, I got in somehow. Uh, I have no idea why or how, but I got in and I went from being a student that should not be in a college, like a D student, to eventually you know, snapping out of it and finding finding a voice And design did that for me. It gave me a direction to point myself in, Um, and that's you know that can be said for any major for the right person. Um, So that's that's not really that telling for design school. But I had teachers that cared, and I had classmates that cared, and we all pushed each other forward. So it was challenging, and that's why there's a love hate relationship with it because you're out of your comfort zone, but on the other side of that, I learned a tremendous amount and it turned into something that was like the love of my life, you know, to be able to make things, um, and be able to inform and teach people with that stuff is, is pretty, pretty huge.
1: Have you ever considered like straight up teaching other than the SVA thing?
2: Yes, I have. I I think I'm, in the classroom setting, I am just an okay teacher. I think I'm a much better mentor. I can help oh, shape and guide mentorship. work yeah. better than I can teach in an organized setting. But I think it's something that I love and something that I would like to do more of. I've, I've taken a break from teaching at SVA um, so I can kind of figure out what it is that I want out of out of teaching. But on the flip side, I ended up at a very large company where I get to teach and mentor designers all day. So I'm, I'm kind of scratching that same itch, just in a different way.
1: Outside of the office, do you have like a formalized mentorship setup or is it very like low key, like people come to you for help and you help them?
2: Uh, there's more of a formalized setting here. I okay. have people that I, I work with regularly, either on my team or, or outside of that. Um, but outside of work, no. I've mentored some people that just got in touch with me and were interested in talking um, and we would strike up a relationship for a couple months and look at their work and and kind of talk through a lot of different topics because they wanted they wanted feedback and they wanted to be able to grow Um, because the I mean this is sort of related to why I think art school is important I think that you need a community to to do this well You know, you need people to tell you when something isn't right or when something is right, something feels off or it feels on. And, uh, you only get that when you see your own mistakes in others' eyes and you also see the mistakes that they're making. As a mentor, uh, maybe we can just
0: specifically talk about Vox. Uh, are there like common things that people keep coming to you for over and over again that you wish you could address to, to thousands of people (laughs) right now and- (laughs) Without having to write a whole blog post, without having to write a blog post. Oh
2: yeah, I mean there are certainly common themes. It's the it's the same exact stuff that I remember wondering about when I got out of school and when I was a young designer. It's like how do I get ahead? You know how How do I be good? (laughs) Yeah, how, how do I be good? And there were I remember times even at my first job where I was like, how will I ever be a good designer? I feel like everything I make is trash, and that. Every time I meet with an art director, it just gets pulled apart and reformed into something that doesn't look like what I made. Like, when will I be good enough that I'm making work that has substance and has, you know, the ability to stand on its own? And I, I just like getting old. I don't know where that line was, but I passed it at some point. And looking back, I could realize like, oh, I'm actually making design in an okay way now. And I, I'm kind of confident about it. Like I know why certain things are the way that they are. And I think a lot of designers have that same need. They want to know where the plateaus are. They want to know how they get to the next level of, of their career. Either is it managing people and helping mentor them and teaching them too? Is it getting deeper into the craft of this thing that you're making? Is it understanding type better? Understanding how to write better? There are all these different avenues that you can pursue and everybody wants to know what the trick is. And if there is a trick, it's to sit down and do the work, do do the work. And that's, it's not a very appealing trick and it's not one that anyone wants to hear. Everyone wants a shortcut. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, there's never, there's never really going to be that shortcut. And if it is, you didn't earn it. You know, you didn't like, you can, you can use every design framework out there to make a website, but you didn't really design it you kind of organized it, you curated it. And that's a different skill and that's great too. But did you really deepen your knowledge of what it is that you're making? Or did you just arrange something, you know? And they're, they're different skills and they both have value in different ways. But I think that um, that shortcut will never, never really fulfill that thing that you want. For you personally, now that you are a director of design,
0: how do you keep, Pushing yourself? Do you have mentors? Do you have people that you're
2: looking up to right now that can you share like what, what that relationship's like? Sure. I mean, I forget who said it. It might've, I think it might've been Michael Beirut said that he he's had mentors and still has mentors and they don't even know that they're his mentors. And that happens with me too. And sometimes it's a, a parent or, uh, another designer or someone who's in a completely different industry. Who's just doing something that I value and I can like pull inspiration from that into my life. I don't think that I have any direct mentors, people who are sitting down with me and pointing me in a direction, but I feed off of all these other people and the work that they do constantly. I'm constantly being inspired by those around me. So I, I kind of surround myself with people who are pushing and pulling on the world and in their inspiration own inspiration parasite. Yeah. I so I'm <laughs> so don't tell them, but Yes, I'm stealing those ideas. What's inspiring you right now? <laughs> um, that uh, the New York Times VR, VR? thing, is uh, that blew me away. The New York Times sent out Google Cardboard with their papers over the weekend, and there was sitting on my doorstep um, this little cardboard box, and I think I had been thinking about VR, but never really dipping a toe into it because... I don't know. It's, it seemed like a a thing that was going to be a very deep hole that if I started playing around with it, everything else would fade away and I would have to focus on it and build something or I, I don't know. It sounds like a movie. <laughs> and uh, it was super inspirational. They made this VR app to report stuff with. And I remember I, I just I tried it out over the weekend and they did this six-minute story on this cover that they had made uh, this they contracted an artist to make this cover for their weekend magazine over the summer and it was this big art installation this kind of pasted up photo of a guy walking uh at madison square park in the city here at the this little triangle outside and so they they go there in the middle of the night and they have this plan and they grid it all out and they they paste down this big picture of this guy walking And it's kind of cool because you're in this room and you're seeing them doing this planning session and you're kind of looking around at the artist and all of his people. But then in the middle of the night, they're doing this thing. And there's this moment where the story just flips and you're up in this helicopter looking down, they're taking photos. And I remember I'm standing there in my apartment and all of a sudden I'm way up in the air. It's, It's like old man looking at at technology but i'm like yelling i'm all alone in my apartment (laughs) and i'm yelling because (laughs) yeah because it startled me and it was just phenomenal it was so immersive uh and wonderful and i love that there are people out there kind of experimenting with this stuff
0: do you want to experiment with that
2: absolutely i I want to try out all these things especially when it comes to journalism yeah
1: have you seen uh the video of glenn keen painting
0: in 3d or like in vr oh my god that.
2: that's so amazing
0: do you think that vr is to designers today like what early web design was back then like are, are we on the the very beginnings of the people starting this now are going to be like or do you think it'll the, fade the og vr designers or something og VR. <laughs> I,
2: I don't know i don't know if uh i i don't feel qualified to even to even posit where this is going to go but i think that it, it's it's somewhere different than like 3D. Like it doesn't feel like a cliche or like a niche thing. It could come into the mainstream, but I would see it more as kind of um, something like in that movie Her, where it's more of like a room. It's not a thing that you wear, but it's an environment that you're in that can change. Um, I even saw some stuff that I think Xbox was doing with their Connect a while ago. The, the
1: room mode or whatever. Is, yeah. Uh, I can't think of what it's What's called. That? They would project into the room it did some interesting things
2: where you could like see outside like outside outside the boundaries of your tv you would see the environment Uh, it was like it was
0: like peripheral vision as like a extra effect Mm. yeah all i know about the connect is what i saw in paranormal activity it's not connected (laughs) (laughs) connected. all
2: of your technology (laughs)
0: knowledge comes from paranormal paranormal activity. activity yeah yeah I'm a big ghost guy. I'm just
1: kidding. I'm not at all. He I, said the other day that he wanted to
0: connect just so it would like detect ghosts for him. Yeah. Nice. You were the ghost. Did you see that movie?
2: Uh I saw the first the, one. The uh, the Xbox One? No. <laughs> okay. I, I didn't see that. That's how you
0: see Paranormal the Paranormal Activity Two, the Xbox One. The Xbox One. You know the Xbox. Oh, Xbox, Xbox One. yeah oh, oh,
2: clever. Horror movies are okay though. What's your what's your favorite? My favorite horror movie, uh, it probably changes. I really like, uh, John Carpenter's The Thing, uh, one of the best horror movies I've seen in more recent years, not even super recent, but, uh, The Descent. Oh, it is so good. That was one of the very first times where I've, I've seen a movie in the theater and I had an audible reaction like an uncontrollable audible reaction (laughs) and that doesn't like i don't scream i don't usually make noises or anything but there's a certain point in the movie where something happened and i I made a noise and it just came out of me and i was i it was like (sighs) it was sort of like a shiver shiver creepy noise and I don't know where it came from, but luckily everyone else was screaming, so I don't think anyone heard me, but I heard myself and I was embarrassed. Um, Man, that is so... What is that noise?
0: (laughs) What's in here? Your neighbor sort of looks at you like,
1: who is this guy not screaming? (laughs) Just to bring it back before we close. Yes. Is there a font that makes you... uh, Uh,
0: Oh, that's a great question. Or a product even.
2: Mm, Hobo? is a font that makes me trajan (laughs) trajan does that as well it's kind of the overused fonts that have been the microsoft uh, word fancy ones yeah all the stuff that's been used so much that any any cleverness any personality that might have been there before has been completely sucked out of it you know like the culture of use has just taken over and it doesn't mean anything anymore and that's fine but that's when something should retire Noted to self to not use Helvetica. <laughs> yeah. Don't, I have the, I have the domain that I, I started making a site for and then I felt like I was trolling. I have should I use com, and it's, it's like done. It's just a one page site that talks about Helvetica and, Oh, I thought it was some just of the history. Like no, I started with <laughs> that. I was expecting it to be no, <laughs> no in the middle. I think it says like probably not. Yeah, <laughs> and then and then there's like a lot of explanation below that. Probably, probably like, not uh, in Helvetica. I yeah. was expecting either no or it depends. <laughs> it depends. Yeah.
1: Cool. Sometimes. Well, thanks for hanging out <laughs> yeah, with us. Thanks for taking
2: Thank the time. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate me. It very much. Thank you very much.
1: That was episode eighty. It's really fun doing those like off-site ones. It's kind of hard to pull off, but it worked out. We found this crazy little table that we sat
0: on top of their coffee table and mounted all our mics to. It was adorable. In a little hidden bookcase kind of room. Shh. It's a secret, the top secret room. If you want to listen to more podcasts like this one, check out the other shows on our network at spec.fm. Of course, if you enjoyed this episode, hit us up on Twitter. We'd love to hear your feedback. We're at Design designdetails.fm. And of course, join us in our Slack team. There's over 2,300 people in there now talking about design, development, And every Friday, we have a weekly critique with some of our favorite designers. To join, go to spec.fm slash slack. Before we go, huge thank you once again to the two sponsors that made this episode possible. Icon Finder is the largest source of icons on the web. There's over 670,000 icons in their library and over almost 13,000 icon sets. You can add your entire design team and collaborate to get these icons in every format, every size, every style imaginable, starting at just nine bucks a month. To learn more, go to iconfinder.com, check out IconFinder Pro, and if you sign up, use the promo code design details. That'll tell them that we sent you and get you 50% off your first month. Thank you so much once again to IconFinder. Our second sponsor is once again Dropbox.
1: Dropbox lets you work the way you want. So, whether that's alone, on a team, on a huge team, like at an enterprise level, all sorts of things, it can handle all of it on any file which we use it for design files. We use it for text files. We use it for audio files. We use it for the insane XML files that come with our audio files with any device across all of our computers, phones from wherever you are in the world, which is, I mean, that's also amazing. As long as you have an internet connection, you can use it. We use it with all of our co-hosts. We use it with all of our co-workers, We use it with our producers. We use it with anyone we're working on projects with. We use it with Epicurrents. We use for like passing art files, all sorts of stuff. It's the best. So, You can start building more cool things. And to do that, just go to dropbox.com to get started. Thank you once again to Dropbox. And we'll see you on Wednesday, where we do a live episode at
0: Etsy. There's a meetup, our first meetup, a panel as well, our first panel. Yeah. See you Wednesday.